Please pray with me. Father, we ask you would be with us this morning by your spirit. ask that you would guide my words, guide our hearing, that your word would not be lost, but that it would go forth as a seed and sown and would bring forth good fruit in our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. If you're new or visiting, my name is Drew Miller, and it's a privilege to have you with us. Um, Some of you guys know I have been training as a docent at the Florence County Museum. Um, Ushi Jeffcoat, who's a relatively new member here, convinced me to do it as a way to connect to the community and get to know Florence better, but she didn't have to try hard because I kind of love that stuff, Um, especially the, the history section, the PD history exhibits. I've actually gotten to do a couple tours now with middle schoolers and with uh, kindergartners this last week. And um, neither time did we get much, much farther than the fossils, than the dinosaurs. Um, and that's because that's what they love, and secretly it's also what I love. And so we get stuck in that first corner. If you haven't been to the museum, it's incredible. It's beautifully done. The exhibits are rich, well-developed. And in the history gallery that begins with fossils, it moves into the colonial period. And in that section, there's a print of a famous painting on the wall, a painting from 1850 by William Tiley Ranney. Marion Crosses the PD, the title of the painting. It's modeled after a more famous painting by Leutze, Washington Crossing the Delaware, and that's a painting that might come immediately to mind. You might recognize it. General George Washington in his dress blue, standing at the bow of a ship, struggling across a river that looks like the ocean. It's so full of white caps and ice flows. The wind is whipping his cloak back and it reveals the bright blues that he's wearing and the brass on his shoulders. He has a stern face and a straight back. He stands apart. He stands alone in the bow, leading the charge across the icy river to victory. Now, William Tiley Ranney's portrait of Francis Marion crossing the P.D., is different. The water is not so stormy. It's calm. I mean, they're fording a swamp, after all. There's no ice around here, though it felt like there was in the outdoor service. There are less men in the painting. There are less boats. But there in the center of the picture sits a man on his horse, dress blues, brass shining in the waning sunlight. And that man in the center of the painting is not Francis Marion. You'd think he would be, but you look closely and it's not. Francis Marion actually sits one horse over. He's somewhat hidden from view. He's wrapped in a blanket. He looks worn, a little haggard, maybe even sick. He's surrounded by his men. One of his men is pointing the way across the river, and his horse is led by a young slave child. The only hint of his rank, as Ben Ziegler put it in his little essay about it, is the glimmer of his epaulette shining under the blanket. Two generals, two heroes of the American Revolution, crossing rivers to surprise the enemy, two paintings of their exploits, memorializing them in oil and canvas, with two very different pictures of leadership. Washington, independent, Braving the storm, strong, his glaze is as icy as the sea. 
This is the heroic American stereotype, isn't it? This is what leadership looks like. This is power. But then you see Marion. He's led by his men. He's easing across the swamp, wrapped in a blanket. He's almost invisible. He's supported, surrounded by a community of soldiers. His leadership is subtle. It's hidden. He doesn't look much like a general, but no less a general for it. This morning on Christ the King Sunday, we're given another portrait of leadership. But it's a portrait still farther from our expected image of power, of the ideal king, the ideal leader. It's so far from that expected image that the crowds, the rulers of the day, they cannot see what is right in front of them. It's so far from the expected portrait of leadership that I think we often miss it too. So look along with me, Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 35. It's in your bulletin. Our gospel reading seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? We're still in Luke, but here at the end of the Christian year, we're suddenly thrown back to Holy Week. We're thrown back to Good Friday. Our gospel begins without any context. Jesus is already hanging on the cross. And in fact, the first thing we find are bystanders watching. Seeing this man crucified and reacting to it. Perhaps in a way we would react. Verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. The rulers scoffed. Now the people watching, we don't get much detail of their response, but the ruling class and the soldiers, we see their response in detail. They are mocking and they're scoffing at Jesus. Now, it's not uncommon for those in power to mock the weak. Power often produces superiority and pride. It is common for the strong to demean the weak for their own pleasure. We've seen this in our lives. But this is more than that. They don't simply insult Jesus because he is weak on the cross, but because he claimed to be strong. Listen to what they say in verse 35. He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 37, this is the soldier speaking. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You see what they're saying? They don't mock him just because he's weak. They mock him because he's shown to be weak after claiming to be so strong. They mock him because he claimed to be the Christ, the anointed Savior, the King of Israel. He even acted like the King, even at times like God himself, declaring judgment and forgiveness, saving others by his words and by his deeds. But now, this would-be Messiah is hanging naked from nails, and the rulers and the soldiers are laughing because this so-called Savior has been shown to be a charlatan after all. Just another nobody. They see the sign that Pilate hung over Jesus' head. This is the king of the Jews, it reads, and they chuckle at the irony. Because the king is crucified. Now people have been laughing and scoffing at Jesus and his followers ever since. You know, one of the earliest portraits of Jesus that archaeologists have uncovered, arguably the earliest of them all, is not a piece of religious art, marveling at the glory of God. It's not some lovely 
oil on canvas masterpiece honoring the God who would come to save his people? No, it's arguably the earliest image of Jesus that we have is a piece of graffiti scraped into a plaster wall in a Roman boarding school from the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. Probably carved by a schoolboy making fun of his friend. It's an etching of a man with the head of a donkey hanging on the cross. While another figure looks on with hand raised. And under the carving is this inscription. Alexa Menos worships his God. Alexa Menos worships his God. See, this isn't reverential religious art. It's graffiti mocking Jesus. More accurately, it's graffiti mocking a follower of Jesus. Because only a fool would worship a crucified God. That's a pretty weak deity. Isn't it? And yet Luke, the author of the gospel from which we read this morning, the painter of the portrait before our eyes, looks at the man hanging there in the center. The man buried in suffering, the man approaching death, and declares that one, that one there is the king of all. He's the king of all. And Luke has given us plenty of reason to believe that this is so. We've seen this Jesus do miracles. We've seen him heal the sick, multiply bread and fish. We've seen him walk on water and raise the dead. We've seen him march towards the cross with eyes wide open, not taken by surprise, not caught off guard. He marches willingly to his death, fully in control, even as his life is drained from him. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. We've seen this man as Luke has portrayed him, kingly in life. And of course, if you know the story, in just a couple days, this man, now dying, will be raised to life again. His kingship will be vindicated. His power will be revealed. But right now, right now, all his kingly life is behind him. And all his visible triumph is yet to come. Right now, the king is dying, destitute and alone. And this does not look like a king to the onlookers, to the rulers and the soldiers. It doesn't look like a king to the schoolboys. And if we're honest, neither does it look like a king to us. Why not? Why doesn't this look like a king? It's a fairly obvious answer, isn't it? Because it doesn't look like power. The portrait of Marion crossing the PD, it tests our vision of leadership. It stretches our vision of authority a little. This is a more humble, communal, subtle leadership portrayed there, sure. But the portrait of Jesus? Where's the command? Where's the dash? Where's the ease? Where is the authority on the cross? Where is the power? I mean, what's power for if it's not to avoid suffering, to escape death? Isn't that all our chasing after wealth or power or control is all about? It's an attempt to cheat pain, an attempt to cheat death. What kind of a fool would worship a God who succumbs to those things? No, we can't envision a power and authority that would willingly suffer. That strikes us as antithetical to the whole purpose of power. And you can tell that we feel this way 
by how quickly we, even as Christians, will abandon the heart of God for worldly political power. We are so quickly taken in. From the church in Germany in World War II that the bishop mentioned last week that so quickly capitulated to the Nazis, to the Christians in America today who on both sides of the political spectrum delight in bashing their opponents. Christians who think that the strongest leader is the most cruel, the most bullying, the most narcissistic person in the room because maybe they can get something done. Christians who say things like, we've turned the other cheek long enough. Or who say things like, fight fire with fire, they deserve it. And perhaps, perhaps in a democracy there are times when you must vote for the lesser of two evils. Perhaps there are times when you must vote for someone who's far from the godly image of power and authority because you hope they will do less harm than the other. Maybe sometimes that angst-ridden, clenched-jaw vote is appropriate. But Christians have done far more than vote for such people. Christians on both sides of the aisle have delighted in leaders that have nothing in common with Jesus. Leaders that bully, leaders that shame, leaders that mock, leaders that have more in common with those crucifying Jesus than with the Lord himself. The Christian must never delight in the pompous cruelty of others, much less our leaders. Such leadership is opposite to the nature of God and antithetical to the heart of the one true king. And therefore, such leadership ought to be repulsive to those of us who claim to worship that God and to follow that king. And you know the ugly truth. When Christians delight in such worldly power, when they follow and praise such leaders, they become like them. The portrait you praise is the portrait you become. Again and again, Christians have sought security, sought power from those who abuse their authority to demean and diminish other human beings. Again and again, we have thought that the biggest bully makes the best king. But not so, says Luke. The painter of the portrait before us this morning, not so, he says, for the greatest power in the universe... The king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, does not lord his power over his subjects, but becomes their servant. This king comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This man, Luke tells us, hidden in a row of state executions, is the true king of all. But no one can see it. The bystanders look, the rulers and soldiers mock and scoff at him. Even one of the criminals crucified with Jesus rails against him. Aren't you the Messiah? He says. Save yourself and us. That's what a king would do. But of course, you are no king. That is obvious from here. Can't be. No king would die like that. Everyone watching seems to see the suffering and to miss the king, all except for one. Did you catch it? In verse 40, 
the other criminal, the third man hanging there, he looks at Jesus and he sees something. Verse 40, the other criminal rebukes the first saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. See, all the world sees the suffering, but cannot see the king. But this man somehow sees the king suffering. And though he cannot understand how it can be, he somehow knows it's true. And so he says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Your kingdom. See, the kingdom is suf- this criminal is suffering no less than the first. He's suffering that he knows that he deserves. But in his suffering, this criminal finds hope somehow in a greater kingdom to come. In a greater king. Hope enough to reach out to a dying man for help. In his suffering, he finds hope because somehow he sees that the one true king is suffering with him. The one true king is suffering for him. It gives him hope in his suffering. How often do we look at the suffering world around us and think that it is out of control? Isn't that why we gravitate to strong leaders and cruel leaders? We think maybe they can hold it together, climate change, war in Ukraine, children hungry in this very city, famines and wars and rumors of wars, as we read last week. We see suffering and we think that the true king could not be present here. He must have abandoned these shores long ago. But the portrait we see this morning in Luke's gospel paints a different story. Because here we find a God who has not fled from suffering, but has entered into it for us. Here we find a king full of true power and glory who lays aside his comfort and lays aside his crown to wear instead the brokenness of this world around his head. And though he looks as though he has been defeated in his suffering, this king was in fact defeating death. He was, in fact, paying the penalty for sin. He was setting the captives free. He was conquering evil there. He was no less a king in his suffering. As St. Augustine would write, the suffering king is not defeated. The king reigns from the tree. He reigns from the tree. Even as he dies, he declares Forgiveness. Even as he dies, he sees the faith in this criminal beside him and declares, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He's still the king. And so this morning, in our reading, in our prayers, in our song, in our meal, you are invited to stare with me at the suffering of our king. To stare at a portrait of power and authority beyond anything else this world has known. And there, as we stare at the suffering of this king, we will find hope beyond appearances. For the king on the cross has not abandoned us to suffering, but has taken it 
himself. Here at last is a king worth following. A portrait to rightly be praised. Amen.